It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to Justice podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Harry Potter, not the wizard, but the prison historian, barrister and author of Shades of the Prison House, a history of incarceration in the British Isles. Listen as Harry walks us through the history of prisons in this country and what has worked historically and what needs to change now in the British justice system. I go by the unlikely name of Harry Potter, but that is my real name, and it was before the books came out. It's been a great advantage in court and elsewhere ever since because it causes a great deal of amusement. Um, I was born and brought up in Glasgow a long time ago, uh, went to Cambridge University, studied history. Um, I uh, became an Anglican priest as well, and as such, I visited a lot of people in Wormwood Scrubs and other prisons because a lot of my parishioners ended up there. I had previously done a couple of weeks as a Borstal boy. Borstals are an institution abolished in 1983, but it was part of our training. I wasn't actually imprisoned, although I was living in a cell and eating the same food and doing the same things as everybody else. I then, um, I was um, a fellow of Selwyn College, Cambridge, and at the same time, because I had long holidays, I began working part-time in the prison service, and I then followed that up with five years full-time, working with maximum security prisoners at Wormwood Scrubs, which was then the Category A prison for London, now it's Belmarsh, um, and Aylesbury Young Offenders, which was the only Category A prison for young offenders. So very much the, the heavy end of the scene. While I was there, I did a part-time law degree, um, and I always thought I wouldn't spend more than five years in prison because staff get institutionalised as much as prisoners. And um, I had this strange notion that we imprisoned too many people for too long, and I went into criminal defence and have been in criminal defence practice ever since. But I also write a lot of books, and I've written one on capital punishment, a couple on Scottish history, a short history of the common law, which has been quite successful. Um, and as a result of that, the publishers asked me to write another book, and I thought this would combine my interest in history, prisons, the criminal justice system. And so I decided to write a, a book on the history of imprisonment in this country, which was published last year. And the title of the book is Shades of the Prison House, A History of Incarceration in the British Isles. Um, and my first question, of course, is what on earth led you 
to write such a book because it goes back over 1500 years, doesn't it? It's a really sort of comprehensive sort of guide um, and gives, gives the reader a good arc as in sort of where we started with our penal systems and sort of where we are today and how much we either have moved on or, or how much we have not moved on in many cases. So what was it that really spurred you on to write the book? The motivation was fairly similar to the previous book I'd written on the history of the common law. I'd been asked by the BBC to present a series on the common law, which I did, and like many barristers, although I was practising in the courts every day, I knew practically nothing about the history of how we got there. And similarly, when I moved on to this other one, and it seemed to be a, a use, because I'd done capital punishment and the law, um, prison seemed the obvious um, other thing to do. And like many people who had been interested in prisons, visited prisons and worked in prisons, I too was not terribly aware of the full history of the prison system. So it was a it was a voyage of adventure for me as well. And I, I like learning new things. And the way I thought I could make it as approachable as possible is to incorporate a lot of real life stories of people in prison. So for instance, rather than dealing with 17th century um, lockups, um, I dealt with John Bunyan in Bedford Prison because he wrote an account of his time in prison as well as writing his great books. And that went on right the way through to Jimmy Boyle, who was the, the Glasgow gangster, um, who spent a long time in the Berlini Special Unit, which was one of those remarkable examples of uh, positive thinking and uh, transformatory uh, approach to um, serious crime, which, of course, the politicians snuffed out. It seems to be an interesting sort of theme through your book, actually, the, the rise of innovation and then it dies. And then something else comes up and it sort of dies. And then something else comes up. Um, and that seems to have been quite a theme throughout the centuries, doesn't it? Um, it, it has, at least since the um, late 18th century. Be before the 18th century, there was no penology. There was no theoretical justification for imprisonment because imprisonment didn't need a rationale. Prisons were places primarily not where people were punished or sentenced to punishment. There were some, like, for instance, for, uh, for fairly minor offences. But the vast majority of people were either held there pending trial or held there pending punishment, the punishment being either branding the death penalty or transportation. But they weren't held there by a sort of government or a state. Well, not primarily by the government, because the government didn't own the prisons. They were they were locally owned either by the local counties, and they were they were farmed out to um, private entrepreneurs. In other words, people would buy the wardenship of a particular prison. So, sort of and like the beginning of the early days of the private prison. No, they were entirely private prisons. Um, um, the private prisons of recent days is just a, a, a slight reversion and a slight going back on the nationalisation of prisons that began fairly early on in the 19th century, but culminated in 1877, uh, when all prisons became state prisons. And that's where you get Her Majesty's Prison, Strangeways, or Her Majesty's Prison, Wormwood Scrubs. So 
it has been a history of largely private enterprise or local authority or the city of london newgate for instance was controlled by the city of london so it was it was primarily private or local organizations that controlled the prisons until the state increasingly intervened they did first of all with the hulks uh, which was an expedient um, when transportation to America ended because of the American um, War of uh, Independence. And so all of a sudden, the, we were no longer able to send people to America. We started that up again with Australia a bit later. But in the interim, they used the hulks, which were decaying, largely decaying warships, where prisoners were, were placed either pending transportation or um, put on public works projects. So they were nationalised. And then when we got the great quasi-panopticon-type prisons, Millbank and Pentonville, they were state prisons. But the rest were not, and they didn't become that until uh, the latter part of the, of the 19th century. And since the latter part of the 19th century, all prisons, uh, until very recently, have been state-controlled, not local authority-controlled, state-controlled, uh, apart from now, the, the few um, private prisons that have been introduced. OK. And then going back to sort of when the prisons weren't private in the way that we know today, but they were sort of private in the, in the way that you described and weren't owned by the government, but sort of private individuals. The people who were held in those, were they called prisons then? Yes. So the people that were held there, was there a big difference between the rich and the poor? Because that certainly seems to be a theme dominated in our justice system today, where it seems to be lots of people uh, from poorer backgrounds that seem to be in prison. And of course, if you don't have enough money, you can't access a good lawyer. So you're fairly stuffed. And obviously, since legal aid um, disappeared, is it true to say that that happened back then as well, sort of pre-18th century? Were prisoners better off if they had money? Uh, yes, because they could pay for extra perks. I mean, the, the, the way in which the private entrepreneurs running the prisons made their money was to charge the prisoners for their keep. Now, if you were prepared to pay above, above the normal rate, you got better accommodation, you got a better cell, you got better bedding. And of course, you could always buy things in the in the, the tap, which was mainly sold, sold alcohol. Alcohol was considered a good thing for prisoners to have, unlike now. So yes, you could, um, you could, um, you could buy your way into, uh, there were various gradations in each prison. Um, and there would be effectively the first class, the second class, and the third class. And you wanted to be in the first class if you could. Of course, many people started in the first class and then ran out of money and then descended into the second or even into the third class. And conditions were very different. The other group one must remember is there was a very large number of debtors in prison, including, for instance, Charles Dickens' father. Uh, so debtors actually took up um, a lot of prison places. Now, they were held in order to compel them to pay their debts. They weren't held as a, as a punishment per se. Conditions, again, tended to be rather better for them, but they also depended on how much they had. But, of course, if you're a debtor, you probably don't have a great deal, or at least you're hiding what you have. Otherwise, you'd pay your way out. How were they expected to pay their way out? Well, if they paid their debt, they would be released. 
um, if they didn't pay their debt, they would be could be held indefinitely. They would probably also have to pay an, an exit fee because not only did the um, the keepers of prisons charge when people entered, it was, it was called garnish, they charged for facilities within the prison, for food within the prison, but they also charged, and sometimes they held people until they paid, they also charged when they were being released, either because they'd been found not guilty in the court or because they were uh, debtors. And that was that was one of the anomalies that was brought to Parliament's light at the end of the 18th century. And then things began to change. OK. And you mentioned the conditions of first class, if you like, second class, third class. What could you expect if you were in those different levels of prison or the different conditions? Well, for instance, take Newgate, the most obvious example. If you were in the... Uh, the, the top tier there, you would have a, a single cell to yourself. Uh, you could possibly have your servant with you. You could certainly receive visitors. Of course, um, ward, uh, prison um, um, keepers liked visitors because they charged them an entry fee as well. But you could have your, your visitors. You could have um, special foods brought in. You could have um, bottles brought in, brought in. Or people like, um, for instance, um, Hogarth the painter went into prison uh, and uh, uh, to, to paint some of the condemned um, felons there. I mean, they would be remunerated for it, for what it was worth, since they were going to the scaffold. But therefore, life could be would be fairly tolerable um, at that sense, apart from the fact that you, you, you know, you were locked up. Um, a bit down from that, conditions were just that bit much worse, um, and you would have poorer food. Um, you might have to share accommodation, live in a dormitory, and you'd have fewer perks. And then at the very, very bottom, you get stories of um, prisoners putting their hands through the grills onto the street to beg money from the passers-by, because these were the these were the really poor prisoners. Um, and a lot of people actually bequeathed money from. Certainly, we've got records from the 14th century onwards of uh, people in their wills um, leaving money for the poor of the poor prisoners of Newgate or the poor debtors of Marshalsea and things like that. It was very much an ad hoc thing, and there was certainly no uniformity in uh, the way in which people were treated. It was very much of what their um, economic condition um, uh, would allow. Uh, that didn't apply, of course, to the penalties. I mean, the rich as well as the poor could end up on the scaffold, although it was more often the poor because the majority of capital offences were property offences, fairly minor property offences. But if uh, if a member of the aristocracy, and this did happen, uh, murdered someone, murdered his servant in this case, he too would be executed. So um, the, the punishment could be the same, but the conditions in which people lived were very different. OK, and then the money that maybe the prison officers and the governor would receive, would that sort of go into a, a central pot, as it were, um, which would be the sort of prison budget, if you like, or was it kind of every man for himself, you know, prison officers taking things on the sly? Uh, well, first of all, they weren't at that point called prison officers. They were called turnkeys um, because their main function, again, um, was to turn keys. They only became prison officers in the um, in the 20th century. I mean, they became prison warders and then prison officers. Um, 
Governor was not uh, a term used. It, it tended to be keeper, although governor governor came in and sometimes it was used earlier on, but it, it came in more predominantly late, later on. But no, what, what would happen is that um, somebody would buy the right to run Bedford Jail, for instance. He would be paid a sum by the local authority to run that prison, but primarily he would get his money from the prisoners who... Uh, came in. That was the vast majority of the money. He would then employ people, the turnkeys, and he would pay them. So obviously, um, you want to employ as few people as possible, and you possibly want to uh, employ turnkeys of a fairly lowly class, because you don't want to employ sort of university professors, because they would charge too much. So you you would employ some local hooligans, probably, to be the turnkeys. Um, not that all turnkeys were bad or anything like it, but it was a mercenary thing and the aim was to make money out of it. And so to keep costs low meant more profits uh, for the staff, primarily for the keeper um, uh, of the prison. Was there sort of disease running rife because of the overcrowding? What, what was that like? Oh, d- disease was um, um, absolutely prevalent. I mean, you're, you're locking up a lot of people in very close proximity because remember in those days, most people were not in separate cells. The separate cells came later. later. So they were all huddled in together. Um, you know, a, a lot of them would have lice on them or other infestations. And uh, ep- epidemics were constantly breaking out. There was a thing called jail fever, which not only killed prisoners, um, it also killed judges and jurors. I mean, at one one point, the old bailey had to be closed down because so many of the staff and the judges and the jurors were dying because the prisoners were coming up from Newgate, which was Newgate. Newgate was beside the old bailey. Um, in fact, the, the present old bailey is built on the old Newgate, plus some other bits. Um, so jail, jail fever um, uh, was... Uh, a constant problem. It, it was typhus. Um, there was also dysentery. And of course, outbreaks of the plague. Uh, again, um, there was no possibility of what we would now call social distancing in a prison. Talking about this now is so sort of interesting, isn't it? Because of course, you know, for the first time in my lifetime, we're seeing COVID-19, but sort of seeing this disease spreading inside a prison and the ramifications that it has and the difficulty of keeping People safe is almost impossible. Uh, yes, and of course it was worse then because not only were things like jail fever and the plague much worse than COVID, uh, because I mean the plague was largely fatal. Um, it spread extremely rapidly, and of course a lot of the prisons they were not they were not built on the Isle of Wight in those days. They were not built out in the countryside. They were built in the centre of town. So Newgate, for instance, we don't actually know how many people died in Newgate during the uh, the Great Plague of uh, uh, 1665 um, because records were kept for the parishes and it wasn't part of a parish. But we do know that there were quite a few more burials thereafter, once again indicating that people um, locked up together were a prime source of infection to each other uh, and they'd nowhere to go. Whereas, you know, a lot of a lot of other well-off people would leave London during the time of the plague. They would scatter off to the, the house in the countryside where they're probably safer. That wasn't the case of either for either the poor of the city um, or in particular, 
the prisoners of the city. So yes, uh, disease has um, uh, for a long time, uh, and that was one of the things the reformers at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century were concerned about. It wasn't just godliness they wanted in prison, it was cleanliness they wanted in prison. But then when you look back to sort of 1553 and we look at Bridewell, for example, and Bridewell, well, you can explain it better than I can what Bridewell was, but it seemed to be a prison and a hospital sort of in one and a homeless shelter. Was that quite sort of ahead of its time? It was. Uh, Bridewell was the first of what we call houses of correction, um, which were established in the 16th century and really proliferated in the 17th century. And houses of correction would take all sorts of people from um, recalcitrant apprentices to vagabonds, prostitutes, um, just sometimes homeless kids, uh, because of course vagrancy was a criminal offence. Sleeping rough, you could go to prison for sleeping rough, as it was called. Bridewell was really the first attempt to use our cursorial building for something other than merely detention. It was an attempt to educate, to train for employment, or to rehabilitate, to wean off prostitution, things like that. I mean, of course, in many ways it was ineffectual, of course there were abuses, of course neither the people running them nor the people there necessarily complied with the ideals of the institution, but it was a start. It was an attempt to do something. Just like when we opened up Bethlehem Hospital, or Bedlam as it was called, it's got a terrible name because of the name Bedlam, but it was, it was actually the most, one of the most progressive institutions of its time. Why was, exactly was it so, so far ahead of its time and so innovative? Well, Houses of Correction, um, it's not quite clear why House of Correction was constructed, um, but it seemed to be there was a, a feeling in society or in higher society that... I mean, it was it was the old Christian it was the old Christian sentiment, I suppose. Just as you would bequeath money when you died to the poor of Newgate or the debtors in the Marshalsea, um, so there was some feeling that we can't just let these fallen women or 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 children in particular um, fall through the net, and we we ought to try and do something positive. So I think there was just that feeling around, which grew in later centuries, but began. Uh, interestingly enough, in the 16th century in this country, which was a bit of a a forerunner for later developments. I mean, these sort of things were also happening, for instance, in Amsterdam. They had similar buildings that were put up, again, with a a somewhat of a reformative as well as a punitive purpose. Bedlam or or Bethlehem Hospital, I mean, it had a a long history of taking in um, the the sick and the needy because it had long been a hospital in the sense of a more like a, a hostel uh, where there would be s- certain amount of nursing care but again it it developed because i think people felt that um, they felt sorry for what they called lunatics these were people who were afflicted mentally uh, by something beyond their control and i mean of course many of them were not dangerous but even the dangerous ones were not responsible and so it was a combination it was a, 
an attempt, A, I suppose, to keep them securely so they wouldn't be a danger to others, but it was also an attempt to cure them because their aim was to get people out and people were released from Bedlam, sometimes readmitted. That was one of the good things. And they didn't charge for entrance. It, it, it was primarily for poorer people. And they didn't charge for entrance. It was a charity. They raised a lot of money from charitable activities. But they they would release people. And then if they relapsed, they would take them back. If you sort of fast forward to today, it seems like we're still in this tussle as to what we want our prisons to be. And we'll get on to politics at some point, maybe right now. But it sort of depends on, it seems it depends on the government and the ministers, whether you actually just want to sort of lock them up, throw away the key, or whether you want places of reform and rehabilitation, or whether you want sort of quasi-hospitals. So it's so interesting that it mm. appears that we're still sort of tussling with that mindset. Yes, the, the odd thing about it is it, it doesn't tend to be, you know, we have one system under the Conservatives and a different system under Labour. We have general political consensus during these periods. So, for instance, the first great reformatory period, which was the late 19th century to the middle of the uh, late 18th century to the middle of the 19th century, there was a general political consensus between conservatives and Whigs and conservatives and liberals, as the Whigs became. Later on, when there was the, um, the the far more repressive regime, because you had the reformatory regime, which was based around Christian conceptions of uh, isolating people so that they wouldn't contaminate each other, but also so they could reflect with their maker, look into their own conscience, almost a sort of Quaker or monastic position. I mean, it's no accident that prisoners live in cells, monks lived in cells. Uh, it, it's it's all taken from that. But there was a general consensus in the early 19th century that these experiments should be tried and an effort should be made, made to reform people. Then you get the repression towards the end of the, or the latter half of the uh, 19th century, where again, there seemed to be a political consensus that uh, repression was the way. And there you had an entirely uniform regime. Everyone treated exactly the same. No privilege for anyone, depending on their class and the amount of money they had. It was equally grinding, but it was grinding. Then you got that extraordinary moment from 1895 till probably about 1960, but predominantly 1895 to 1939 where you saw this great relaxation and transformation of the prison estate. And that, again, relied on political consensus. You got conservative uh, home secretaries uh, behaving like liberals and liberal home secretaries behaving like liberals and socialist um, home secretaries behaving like liberals. So all of those, no matter which home secretary was in office, you you tended to get uh, get a, a a political consensus that the whole nature of imprisonment should be transformed. We should be closing prisons. We should be reducing prison numbers, and we should be cutting off that terrible thing, recidivism. And that's when you concentrate on young offenders because if you can nick it in the bud with young offenders, they don't become. They, they don't go on to become old offenders and repeat offenders. And so there was this tremendous sense of hope and commitment and utter dedication amongst the staff for transforming the system and in, not only improving conditions in prisons, 
to a limited extent, but allowing people to read books of their choice or to have you know outside lecturers come in or prison visitors come in. But the main emphasis being on how do you deal with young offenders? Uh, and the answer that worked for quite a long time was not to put them in prison, but to send them to what was called Borstal. And during that period, our prison numbers did decline. We did close prisons down. And uh, people came from all over the world, from Germany, France, America, and so on, to see how our system was working. So we were one of the world leaders in those days. Now we're one of the world leaders, but because that's because we incarcerate so many people, along with America and China and so on, um, or in, in proportion to our population. And, and, and ironically, again, when we became more repressive, which really, I suppose, you can date it to 1966 when George Blake escaped from Wormwood Scrubs. That was a Labour administration. <laughs> then, ironically, you get a, a couple of uh, very liberal um, Conservative Home Secretaries, Douglas Hurd and uh, Kenneth Clark, who did try to reverse it, and, and to, to some extent successfully, but for a limited period. And then you've got people like Michael Howard, who was one of the most repressive of all um, Home Secretaries. He was the man who coined the phrase, prison works. In other words, it works by containing violent, evil people protecting the public. Uh, and it wasn't to do with rehabilitation. It was to do with containment and public protection. But he was then followed by people at Jack Straw, who were just the same. And you, if you, if you read the books by some of the mainly by David Ramsbottom, one of the prison inspectors, uh, he managed to fall out. Not uh, not that this was difficult. He managed to fall out with Michael Howard and Jack Straw because he was equally transient in his criticisms of both. So unfortunately, there has been political consensus, um, either for reform or against reform. Do you somehow think whether our justice system as a whole would be better off without politics being so intrinsic in amongst it all? Uh, well, it's difficult to take politics out of it because, after all, it's the government who pays for it. It's a bit like taking politics out of the National Health Service. Yeah, but it's interesting when you look at sort of the Scandinavian countries. And I remember um, listening to a speech by the head of the Swedish prison service and he said, well, you know, the government tell us we need to run a good prison, a safe prison. And when people leave, they have to be less likely to reoffend." He said, so they don't really bother us. They let us get on with our jobs. And everyone burst out laughing because it seems that sort of politics has sort of gone so deep into the sort of operations of prisons mm -hmm. at certain times well, over the last few decades. It, it has been the last few decades because... The, the, what you describe in Sweden was really what we had at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, when nice. we had a prison commission, which was based in the Home Office. But these were commissioners who were commissioned by the Queen. You know, they received a royal commission and they were not um, subordinate to their political... I mean, overall policy would be dictated by politicians, but largely they were allowed, you know... The policy was don't allow prisoners to escape if you can, if you can, and certainly try and reform them so that they come out better rather than worse. And they were left to get on with it. And that's when you can, I, I think, that released um, a lot of um, inventiveness and imagination 
because you got particularly um, Alexander Patterson, who was the most prominent of all those reformers and is of the same level as uh, John Howard or Elizabeth Fry, though largely forgotten now. But he was a tremendous influence. Of the, he came in from the outside the prison system. He was never a prison governor, but he had worked with kids in Bermondsey and had been in the army during the First World War and so on. Uh, but he came in and he was a fund of new ideas. And he was backed by the other commissioners and backed by the politicians. But the politicians really were just happy to leave things to their own devices. The problem was they abolished the, prisons, uh, the prison commissioners in 1963, probably because they thought, well, we'll just integrate this into the, into the home office. A civil servant can run it. Now, commissioners were not civil servants. Uh, a civil servant can run it. The trouble was, um, and they thought it was, um, you know, nothing ever happens in prison. Prisons have been going along. We've been getting on quite well with prisons. They haven't caused any problems. And then all of a sudden, no sooner had they taken over than all the problems arose. I think that was a coincidence and date. But they, they abolished the commission in 63. And then, and then, of course, the Home Secretary became very much responsible for the prisons. And therefore, if somebody escaped, there would be political ramifications. I mean, for instance, in the earlier period, the view was um, we're not concerned about people escaping prison. We're concerned about people leaving prison in a worse state than they went in. And the attitude, I mean, for instance, uh, once when um, a couple of prisoners had escaped from Pentonville Prison, the governor phoned up Alexander Patterson in a state of some trepidation to inform the commissioner that two of the prisoners had escaped. And the response was, what a pity. Nowadays, the governor would be sacked because politicians tend to sack governors in order to protect their own positions. Uh, but it is one of those ironies that... Uh, um, we have now far greater political interference than we, we used to have, and prisons are in a much worse position uh, now than they were in those days. Not that you'd ever want to be locked up in a prison, but if you were to choose a period of time and a place, having researched these prisons um, you know, in order to write your book, where do you think you would like to be? <laughs> Well, if I if I had a choice, um, it rather depends who I was. If I, if I had psychopathic tendencies or uh, not not mental illness, but uh, um, perhaps mental health problems or personality problems, I'd like to end up in Grendon. Now, Grendon is a remarkable thing. It started it, it had a long genesis. Grendon is a, is the only therapeutic prison we have in the prison estate. There are other prisons that have therapeutic wings, but Grendon was established as a therapeutic prison. It was in fact the and it and it goes back to the 1930s when the idea arose from what that was being done in Wormwood Scrubs with groups of a few prisoners, because they were now allowing psychoanalysts in and uh, psychologists as well. Um, but it wasn't, it, it was proposed before the war, but of course the, the war, the Second World War stopped everything, um, including that whole progressive optimistic period right up to 1939. But eventually Grendon was built in 1963. The first governor was a doctor, uh, wasn't a... a, a a disciplinary officer. He was a medical officer. Um, he's now been, I mean, that, that was a long time ago. It's now a go governors uh, have been in charge most of, most of the time 
thereafter. But it 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 is one of the um the, the great beacons of hope because prisoners who have been there speak very highly of it. For instance, um there's Mark Leach, um, who you may have heard of. Mark Mark Leach um was a, a long-term recidivist prisoner um who ended up in Grendon. Um, he's now been writing uh, the prison handbook for the last 20 or 30 years. Um, it now gets prefaces by justice secretaries or home secretaries. Uh, it is considered the uh, sort of the Bible for the prison service, produced by a prisoner. He speaks very highly of Grendon because all of a sudden um, the whole attitude to being people who are in, in Grendon are on first name terms. You have to be drug free. You have to be alcohol free. You must be non-violent and you have to attend yeah. therapeutic sessions. Yeah, but it sort of goes back to that um, idea of Bridewell, does it not? The sort of prison in the hospital. I know Grendon isn't a hospital as such, but it's the therapeutic environment. It's about um, emotions and working out what's happened to people and changing that question from what's wrong with them to what's happened to them and working with their past in order to change their future. Do you think that's we should have more of that as opposed to this sort of flip-flopping between no interventions and then somewhere like Grendon, which is all about interventions. Yes, I do. Um, and and Grendon is in, in many ways the sole survivor from that optimistic period from the 1930s because the idea of it arose in the 1930s. There have been others. The most notable one was the Berlinese Special Unit in, in Glasgow, which took some of the most, well, it, it was meant to take the most violent prisoners uh, in Scotland. Jimmy Boyle is the most famous of them because he went on to become a, um, a prominent writer, playwright and sculptor, having been considered the most dangerous man in Scotland. Now, it took in these people. It produced an environment that was not unlike um, Grendon, but on a much smaller scale, because it was only a unit within a big prison. But they were doing very much the same things. And it got a lot of publicity, initially a lot of very good publicity. Uh, but the trouble was it was too good publicity because it portrayed prisoners in too good a light. And some of the people who, um, and, it, and it was a threat to the way in which other prison officers and other prisons were running things because, you know, they could put these people in chains or in cages, as they were called. And there were some prisons that actually had a cage-like thing within a cell. So you put them in the cage. You could contain them like that, but then they were even more ferocious when you let them go. But in fact, encouraging them to sculpt or paint or write a book seemed to work wonders. Are you saying it fell victim to the sort of views of officers or it fell victim to the sort of politics and what people thought on the outside or a little bit of both? It, it's both. The Prison Officers Association um, were very critical of it. I mean, it was quite easy to pick up um, things that had gone wrong there, how drugs had been smuggled in on this occasion, how that prisoner had misbehaved on that occasion. But they actually were fairly minor, these criticisms, and some of them were unfounded, but they were propagated nonetheless. Prison officers who worked in the Bolini Special Unit were often sent to Coventry by their colleagues. They wouldn't be spoken to by the prison officers. It was as bad as that. And then the politicians got involved. Teddy Taylor, a Conservative MP in Glasgow, um, began heavily criticising it. But his criticisms were then, again, taken up 
by the, the Labour Minister in office uh, who was responsible for prisons. And eventually um, the Berlin Special Unit was closed down. So the only real survivor of, um, of the 1930s is Grendon and those similar units in some other prisons. But at least they haven't been snuffed out. They have remained. They have survived, uh, despite the fact that they've been criticised as well. And and there was, there was always um, this thing that uh, politicians fear most of all, um, that the public perceive of prisoners as being pampered. Um, you'll get the sun headlines of, you know, holiday camps and all this sort of thing, which is far from the truth. But uh, any publicity that suggests that we are being soft on crime or worse, soft on criminals or giving them the advantages in prison, which a law abiding person wouldn't have outside or, you know, the opportunities in prison that a law abiding person outside wouldn't have um, is anathema. And politicians tend to run for cover as soon as that happens. And there's always a danger with the Grendons of this world, the therapeutic units, uh, when people hear that, you know, a prison officer might be sitting down and having a cream scone with a life sentence prisoner. Yeah. You know, I always make the argument when sort of people are saying that and, you know, and I come back and I say, do you not think it's in all of our interests for these people to come out, maybe less violent, maybe less dangerous? And people say, well, of course. <laughs> and you go, well, it might be unpalatable, but we actually do know what to do with people in order to make them less violent, don't we? You know, they knew it back in the 18th century. Um, Elizabeth Fry was doing this work. John Howard was doing this work. Alexander Patterson, you know, they knew. We know today. It's just a case of trying to get it done, isn't it, which is so difficult. Uh, yes, it is. I mean, I mean, the one one hope, I suppose is that at least for a lot of people working within the prison service, certainly in my time within the prison service, prison officers much preferred doing positive work than just being turnkeys. I mean, that's not the case with all. I mean, of course you get the the, the, the bullies and the unpleasant people. And it was significant, I, I noticed in, in prison, um, that... Um, it wasn't that all prison officers were assaulted. And the reason they were assaulted recently because they were particularly unpleasant people. Uh, so if, if, you, if you were a decent prison officer, you were less likely to be assaulted. But a lot of prison officers actually enjoy doing a more purposeful thing than just being a turnkey. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience over the years as well. Um, and it's almost like there's two different cultures. There's the sort of more difficult culture who aren't so interested. Um, and then the other culture of sort of newer officers, maybe, and some of the older lot who actually are in the job because they care about human beings and they want to make a positive impact on, on these people's lives. And, and certainly when it comes to the high levels of burnout that we're seeing, you know, they say that burnout happens when people are being asked to operate against their moral code. And certainly over the years, I've seen lots of prison officers who are being asked to operate against their moral code, which is very difficult to cope with. It also is the case that it depends where they go. I mean, for instance, officers are not handpicked for Grendon. They become Grendon officers. I, I remember speaking to one officer in Grendon who was on first name terms with the prisoners and so on. Uh, and I was saying, you know, I assumed he had uh, volunteered for this post. And he said, no, no, no. Um, I, 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 I was in Wandsworth and I was a Wandsworth screw. 
they then moved me here and I've become a Grendon school. So uh, whereas I was, you know, vicious and repressive in Wandsworth, I became all, you know, touchy-feely when I came to Grendon. <laughs> so you, it, it is partially, you know, the, the canteen culture that also dictates um, whether people's um, better angels are released um, or their little demons are uh, suppressed. But when you actively involve officers, I mean, I, I certainly found, I mean, I'll give you an example of Aylesbury. Uh, Aylesbury Young Offenders Institution um, in the 1980s, early 1980s, had been uh, very violent, um, uh, full of um, uh, people being in the segregation block, people on protection for in, in segregation for their own protection, sex offenders um, um, and, and, and other undesirables within the prison estate. But a new governor came along and uh, it, it, it was very much carrot and stick. He imposed a much more rigid disciplinary system, but then relaxed it. Um, and he told them, you know, either either... Uh, if you misbehave, you, you, I'll ship you out. If you if you behave, you'll get lots of perks. And he brought in some new officers, but but some of the old officers remained. Um, but a lot of the new officers, I mean, the the ones I knew, there were quite a few from the the armed forces, uh, and they were very good. They weren't frightened for a start, but also it worked. I mean, he, he when I arrived, he had just built a new segregation unit. We originally had about three segregation cells. He he opened up 20, filled it overnight. But then, over the next few months, it emptied and remained empty. Uh, and also, um, there was nobody on uh, segregated for their own protection because sex offenders could walk around the prison without being assaulted by other prisoners, as could prison officers. Uh, one of the prison officers was taken hostage by a couple of long-term prisons, prisoners with a um, broken bottle to his neck. And the prison officers, I was there, the prison officers had to restrain the life sentence prisoners from going to the assistance of the prison officer because he was a very popular prison officer. But uh, as well, um, once when security, um, security are always the key, when security are happy with a development that it's not going to pose a risk. You get permission to do a lot of things. And we introduced a lot of things in Aylesbury. I, I was part of it, but not the, not the sole part of it by any manner of means. For instance, we introduced Life of Family Days, where we, we brought in, uh, people were allowed to invite in um, siblings, girlfriends or boyfriends, um, parent, parents was the, the norm, um, into the prison to spend the entire day there with their prisoner. And these are people, they, they probably not, I mean, these were life sentence, all life sentence prisoners. Uh, and the last, you know, the only contact the, the, the families have had with their, um, with the boy inside uh, had been for, you know, our visits behind a glass screen sometimes uh, in a very sterile visiting area. Here they came in, uh, we had morning coffee, we had lunch prepared by the prisoners in the kitchen area, we had afternoon tea. The, the 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 families were taken into onto the prison um, landings and into the cells where their children lived. And believe me, they were relieved because in their imagination, prison conditions were worse than they actually were. I mean, Aylesbury is a, a, a Victorian prison. It's an old building. It's not the brightest and shiniest place, but it was far less bad than people imagined it to be. And also, 
A lot of them got on first name terms with the prison officers. And as one boy said to me, if I if I if I cause any trouble here now, not only will the governor punish me, but they'll get to phone up my mum and tell and she'll tell me off as well. <laughs> so so the prison officers actually wel- welcomed this and were eager to take part. So you can you can bring out the best in prison officers as well as bringing out the best in prisoners with a little bit of, of humanity, imagination. But you also but the governors do need the confidence that if things go wrong, they won't get it in the neck. And and that's been the problem over the last 40 years. Um, you can try something good and then one, you know, one uh, one major escape takes place and everything collapses. Whereas exactly. there had been a greater confidence in the past for uh, you, you learn from your mistakes. There will be mistakes. Uh, some things will go wrong, but we don't sack the people. What we do is we sack the people who have no ideas and no, no desire to change anything and no imagination. We want vision. And, and yeah. the, the trouble is, I think a, a, a lot of the vision has gone out of, of, of prisons. But there is still that rehabilitative potential and desire. I mean, the, you know, the prison rules still state, you know, the, the old mantra of living a good and useful, or I think, that's, I think good's been replaced with law-abiding, law-abiding and useful life. But there is still that, um, um, that element in it. Um, and it's, it, you know, th- things, have, things have gone in a, in, in a circle from the, from the start of uh, penological thinking in the late 18th century. Um, and we've been in reform, repression, reform, semi-repression. Uh, there is always a possibility we could get back to a, a, a more reformative approach. So are you optimistic about the future? You know, you've done a lot of looking back in order to write the book over sort of centuries. Do you do a lot of looking forward? And I'm sure you have an idea of what you'd like the prison system to look like. Well, I'd, I'd like to be to be much smaller. I'd like prisoners to serve shorter sentences and fewer prisoners to uh, be incarcerated. Uh, I mean, we. Uh, I mean, for instance, one 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 could even say that during the, the 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 present crisis, that every day spent in prison should count as two. That would be a way. That would be a simple way of the government just saying conditions are far more oppressive than they they normally are, bad as they are, <laughs> but they're even worse now. Um, and so you could get rid of prisoners like that, but that would be a short-term gap during during the uh, the COVID outbreak. But um, it, it, I find it hard to understand why the British seem to think that we have we're producing a larger number of of um, dangerous people that need to be incarcerated than any other country in Europe. We have more life sentence prisoners in um, English prisons than in the rest of the European Union put together. So it's, I mean, admittedly, a lot of them don't have the life sentence, but even so, uh, we have, uh, we, and, and we have a higher proportion of prisoners than any uh, other prison in Europe. I mean, America's worse than we are, China's worse than we are, but perhaps they are not exemplars to be, to be, uh, to be looked to at the present time. So yeah, you've got to you've got to reduce prison numbers. Um, I think you've got to um, give greater autonomy. There have been attempts since the abolition of the prison commission to reinstitute something like it, but they've always been quashed. There have been at least two such attempts. Um, uh, Wolf made such a, a similar recommendation, as did others, but it didn't. They didn't come to anything. But I think if you um, 
if you give um, greater autonomy to those running the prison system, greater trust in them, and not recruiting primarily from long-term civil servants, many of whom have never been in a prison in their life and don't know anything about it. Uh, so giving them greater con autonomy and greater confidence that they can look for the best and make experiments rather than being cut down. I can't say, I mean, I think the prisons are, have entered the biggest crisis in their history uh, because of their numbers, because of um, the numbers incarcerated, because of the conditions in which they're incarcerated. This is before the epidemic. The epidemic has just made things worse because under the rather savage cuts under the coalition government, I mean, I know money was short and so on, but they, they got rid of a lot of uh, the most experienced prison officers. Uh, and as I mean, the, the director general actually said to me, and they said, can you get rid of 10,000 officers? And I said, yes, no problem at all. But another 10,000 will leave with them because they'll take redundancy and they'll be all the most experienced officers. So although they are now recruiting again because they realise that the prison officer ratio is too small, they've lost all that experience. So it, it's, it's short-term expediency rather than long-term thought and a certain amount of risk-taking. And also, if you want to encourage really good people into the prison service at all levels, I don't just mean at the governor grades, but at the ordinary prison officer grade, uh, if you want to inspire people to, to join, you have to give them a, visage, a, a vision that is greater than just being a turnkey. And that's certainly what something like Alexander Patterson managed to do in the 1920s. He recruited other soldiers he knew in the army. Uh, he went round the schools and gave talks and recruited um, young men, you know, 10 years later, joined the prison service because of a talk he gave. But they were all motivated by this, this vision of we can actually do something that can transform people's lives and society. So we could end up, as their, their aim was, in a society where there were no prisons. I think that's probably a fancy too far. And, and, and there, there will always be some people who are, really are so dangerous that they um, need to be locked up in some sort of institution. And they're, if they're not mad, they won't, they won't go to Broadmoor or the other special hospitals. If they're not, um, if they're not in the um, psychologically disturbed range, they won't go to Grendon. Uh, but there, there, there must be other ways of keeping them more humanely than we do, even though some may never be released or will only be released after a, a very prolonged period. But for an awful lot of others, that doesn't apply at all. No, exactly. And Harry, I want to say thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. And if listeners want to learn more, then they should buy your brilliant book. Um, just a reminder, it's called Shades of the Prison House, A History of Incarceration in the British Isles. Harry, thank you so much. Can I also add that I'm about to publish the biography of Alexander Patterson, which has never been published before, but I managed to find his family, so I've got his archives, and it's with the publishers now. I'm not sure when, it's going, I'm not sure when it's going to be uh, published, but it's a year ahead of schedule. Well, I look forward to that. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe 
Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.